according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me, if you would, in the word of God, in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 5 today. Isaiah chapter 5. have to move a little faster than last week. Last week we had the short little chapter 4. Six little verses and we cheated because uh, verse 1 we actually included into the, tacked it on to the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 was uh, short. Chapter 5 is a bit longer. 30 verses we've got to deal with. As well as uh, the poetry of this with a song that it begins with. Isaiah chapter 5 begins with a song. Let me sing now. For my beloved, I am not going to sing, I'm going to teach. And before we teach, let's take time for a word of prayer. Let's ask God the Father to set aside our thinking, to humble us under the authority of his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and it is our blessing to assemble together on this day. Not one of us here, Father, earned it or deserved it. This uh, provision is a grace provision that uh, you have provided a lampstand with the Word of God to go forth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, I thank you for the refuge that we have in the midst of um, our society and our culture and the world around us. We have uh, a world screaming its messages of instability, and yet, Father, we have an anchor I thank you, Father, that we have a place of refuge whereby we quiet our soul with the stability of your truth. I thank you that your truth renews us, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, and therefore we are not conformed, Father, to the age, uh, to the world in which we live. Father, I ask for this process once again on this day, claiming the promise that your word will not return void, it will accomplish the purpose for which you set it, and that includes this message on this day at this time to these people. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in the, on the back of your bulletin, you have the outline from um, or through the Bible notes. These have been printed week after week after week. These were the outlines that we taught in 2002, and our study today will be largely similar. Uh, Isaiah 5 hasn't changed since 2002. Uh, the content is still the content of Isaiah 5. However, I have developed a new outline. I've developed a new um, format for the points of study that we're going to be looking at to fit the format structure of our class today, to fit the fact that we are going to cover a chapter per week for 66 weeks in the book of Isaiah. So hold on to those outlines, make use of those outlines as you review, but while you're sitting here listening, take a new outline based on what you see on the slide and what uh, what you hear based on the principles of study as we are looking at them here today. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. We begin with a love song. We begin with a love song. Isaiah's love song employs similar imagery as Jesus' parable of the landowner. Isaiah's love song employs similar imagery as Jesus' parable of the of the landowner. And I think we want to take the time to understand not only Isaiah chapter 5, but also to go to the Gospels. We can turn to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We don't have to read them all. Uh, But we can turn to the Synoptic Gospels and we can remind ourselves of this parable of the landowner. And we can understand the doctrine, the content of what uh, either the song is dealing with or what the parable is dealing with in the metaphor of speaking of Israel as a vineyard and speaking of God himself as the uh, as the owner, the planter, the worker of the vineyard. Again, let me sing now for my well-beloved. The language of love here, the language of this love song. If I didn't know any better, I thought I might think we were reading Song of Solomon, for example. That's the language of what's employed. This is a uh, an erotic love. It's not ahav, it's dode. It's dealing with a physical love uh, between a man and a woman. And this is the kind of intimacy that Isaiah has with his Lord. My my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with a choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not yet done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. This song does not have a happy ending. I'll just tell you now, all right? I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. All right? This is the consequences for not bearing fruit when God has already done all things necessary for you to bear fruit. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. All right, so here's the first seven verses related to uh, Isaiah's love song. Isaiah describes the faithfulness of Yahweh and the faithlessness, the faithlessness of Israel and Judah. And you stop to ask, what is their excuse? What can they possibly blame for their non-productivity when he has done everything necessary for the production of good grapes? Isaiah describes the faithfulness of Yahweh and the faithlessness of Israel and Judah. And we have the contrast here. And we have the inevitable consequences then of discipline, of judgment, by failing to respond to the goodness of what God has provided, they're then forced to respond to the chastisement of what God provides. It will be, uh, they will have no escape when he removes the wall, when he removes the tower, when he allows for the, the wilderness to come in. And we have the message as it's described here. The Lord, when he taught his parable, used similar imagery. Jesus When he teaches this parable, he actually introduces something even more severe. Jesus contrasts the servants with the son. He was not so much interested in the produce and what was being produced or the lack of the produce or the the consequences there. By the time Jesus is ministering, they've already been swept away in Isaiah's judgment. They've already been restored back to their land in in, uh, the circumstances there. Join me in Matthew 21. We don't have to read all of these. Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. They're all parallel with each other. So if we read any one of them, I think we have the, the gist of the others. It is so marvelous to study the connections between Isaiah and the Gospels. Because I don't know that Jesus quoted from an Old Testament book more than the book of Isaiah. All right, possibly Psalms. I know just as a general rule in the New Testament, Psalms is is referenced in the New Testament more than any other book. But second to Psalms is the book of Isaiah, cited more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. And if the New Testament pattern is also applicable to the Gospels, uh, and and Jesus in particular, I think uh, that those proportions also uh, bear themselves out. All right, Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. All right. Does all that sound familiar? (laughs) Okay. Sounds very familiar. In fact, I believe it's drawn directly out of Isaiah chapter 5. Okay. There are some aspects in the New Testament that are not quotations so much as they are allusions. All right. Allusions. A-L-L, not I. An illusion is a magic trick. An allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. And Old Testament allusions in the New Testament, such as here. And the imagery of the vineyard. So there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So not only does he use the same imagery, but he does so in such a way that his audience has no other way to understand this than with reference to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, with respect to God who has planted Israel as his vineyard, because that's the understanding of Isaiah chapter 5. So he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. 
And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. So they're very dismissive of the servants that, that the uh, owner had sent at various times and various seasons throughout the years. These would be representative of the Old Testament prophets and judges and, and uh, so forth. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. God very graciously sends additional servants. He sends additional servants. He gives them time. Remember, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But afterward, he sent his son. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. And I love this because this is what Jesus is doing here. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the reality of all of the previous prophets, every one of those previous prophets who said, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. But now Messiah is here. And what kind of message is Jesus going to give? Is Jesus going to give a message like Isaiah and say, Messiah is coming? No, it's stupid. Because he is Messiah. Messiah is here. They will respect my son. That there will be a difference. They will, they will respond to the Christ differently than they responded to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel or uh, Elijah or Elisha or any of the prophets, to Samuel or to Moses. All right? Well, we know better because we know the end of the story. We understand that just as they rejected all those prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, right? Just as they persecuted the prophets who came before him, they persecuted the Messiah. They crucified the Messiah. In rejecting God the Son on their behalf, they rejected the Christ. And he prophesies this. They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Always boggles the mind when the, when the workers believe that they, for some reason, have some claim to own the farm, to own the vineyard, to own the company. That, as if somehow because they are hired workers, now that entitles them to the ownership of the, uh, the property to begin with. No, they are stewards, they are employees, they are hirelings. And they think that by virtue of killing the heir, that they can seize the inheritance for themselves. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? I know I love this. This is a beautiful, beautiful gotcha moment on the part of a prophet, right? This is a beautiful moment similar to uh, when the prophet Nathan is, is preaching and he gives his parable of the, the man and his little sheep. And, and he, by the time Nathan is done with that story, David is just livid. David is furious. He says, that man deserves to die. <laughs> and the prophet Nathan says, you're right. That man does deserve to die, David, and you're the man. Okay. Now here's Jesus doing the very same thing. He's telling them this parable. And they're getting mad. And he says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard comes? What's he going to do to those vine growers? They abused his servants. They abused his, his messengers. They abused them all. And then finally, they murdered his son. What is that landowner going to do? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And just as in the David moment, just as in you are the man, Jesus now has the opportunity to spring the, the reality on them. He's preaching about himself. He's preaching about them. And in fact, they will. those wretches do come to a wretched end. You ever read Josephus? You read what happened in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and, and the siege that led up to that and the cannibalism that led up to that? It was a wretched end for those wretches who so boastfully uh, defied the Lord God and said, His blood be on our head and on our children. And sure enough, in 70 AD, the Father's wrath befell the city of Jerusalem. All right. Well, in Jesus' contrast, in Jesus employing that imagery from Isaiah chapter 5, he's contrasting the servants with the Son. All right, and he's showing the necessity with respect to, as we go back to Isaiah chapter 5, and as we see the seriousness of that consequence, what do you think the seriousness is for us and our consequence? Because, you know, we are 
much more accountable. In the body of Christ, our accountability is stricter than Israel ever dreamed of. If they fell into apostasy and rebellion, they were defying the shadows and the, and the, um, the foreshadowing and the, the types. If we fall into apostasy and rebellion, we are defying the reality, not the shadows. It is as if we are trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant. Spitting in grace is what I call it, in the defiance of the sacrifice that the Father uh, gave when He provided His Son. So in contrasting the servants with the Son, I believe Jesus takes this Isaiah 5 message and makes it far more severe for you and for me to make our applications in. When we start, when we look around at our vineyard, when we look around at our wall what's the wall around our life what's the tower in our vineyard what's the work god has done in me so that i could bear fruit for him and if i dare to say that oh well these worthless grapes are his fault (laughs) wait a minute all right god in his perfection does nothing imperfectly i'm the one that is failing to achieve the fruit that he has designed me for and so we have the song here in uh, back to Isaiah 5 now, this song here that uh, we're dealing with. Now, what I find is interesting, Isaiah himself is describing apostasy in his generation, yet he personally, he personally has a love affair with Jesus Christ. He personally refers to Yahweh as his dode, all right? Not dowd, close, dode, all right? The Hebrew dode is the word for beloved, is the word for um, sexual love, is the word for physical love between a man and a woman. It's the verb that you find and the noun that you find all throughout Song of Solomon talking about a man and a woman in marriage, where that kind of love belongs. But this is the kind of love that Isaiah has for the Lord. And that's a good thing. Because the prophets under persecution, they better have a love uh, affair with the, with the Lord or they're not going to last long in the ministry. All right, because they're dealing with a stiff-necked people. They're dealing with uh, what's being described in this song. <laughs> they're dealing with a bunch of people that are not bearing fruit, that are not uh, conducting their nation for the glory of the Lord who redeemed them. And what are we going to do in our day and age when our culture is uh, headed the direction it's headed? Do we still maintain our love with Jesus Christ? We're his bride. Are we going to stay the course? Are we going to remain faithful? We're under the more severe accountability. All right, now we have the messages of woe. Six woes make it clear that judgment is pending. Six woes make it clear that judgment is pending. If you ever want to do, I won't take you through this, but do it yourself. Have a little fun exercise this afternoon. Go through these woes. I'll take you through the woes. But then go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 19, and take a look at the six things God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Look at that list of six and seven and ask yourself, is there not a parallel here (laughs) with the societal damage that is being done? See, those six things that are done by individuals, God hates, but when they're done collectively as a culture and as a society, I think you see them reflected in uh, the description of what we have here in um, Isaiah chapter 5. Six woes make it clear that judgment is pending. When he pronounces woe, he pronounces woe. I even went through and, oh, I forgot to get my software running. I was going to get my Logos software running here and show you. We'll let that load while we're thinking about it. The woes just jump right out at you. Anytime you're receiving a woe message in the Old Testament, it's not good news. All right? It means that there had been other messages prior that you failed to respond to. There were messages of warning prior. By the time you reach the woe stage, you're already beyond that point of should have repented by now, and there is pending imminent judgment on the way pending imminent judgment on the way. So um, the warning is given as it's given here. All right, verse 8, woe. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. Here's the first of our woes. It takes us in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. Verse 11 has the second woe. 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. And we have the description of it there in verses 11 and 12. We'll outline each one of these. Then there's a bit of a commentary on the people in verses 13 and 14 here that uh, expands upon that second woe a bit. It even actually takes it down through verse 17. Then the third woe comes in verse 18. The fourth woe in verse 19. The fifth woe in verse 20. The sixth woe in verse 21. All right, how many of these do we need to listen to? (laughs) How many times does the Lord of hosts shout woe and we realize that this is a people who are under um, God's immediate expectation of discipline, his immediate application of judgment? All right, six of these woes, and let's see uh, how we get through these. I can't spend the whole hour on these because we got the uh, end of the chapter I want to make sure we save time for. Um, real quick, let me just grab Proverbs because this is where we are on Wednesday mornings. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And if you are not available on Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock to be a part of this class live and in person, I recommend uh, downloading them, getting them off the website and listening to them each week because There's something uh, special about that Wednesday morning class. All right, Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things which the Lord hates. Uh, Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. Look where it starts. And these may not be the things that we expect because there's a certain uh, judgmentalism on the part of some, some folks who like to think that their sins are better than other sins. All right. But these are the things that the Lord hates. Seven, which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, it starts with that. And this uh, actually condemns a significant portion of churchianity. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. Where do your feet run? Where do your feet run on a moment's notice? What do you, what is, uh, what's, your, what's your default escape plan? And finally, one who spreads strife among brothers. The seventh is the worst. When you have the six and seven formula, what that means is it's spotlighting number seven. It's showing that all those other ones lead up to that one, and that seventh one is the, is the crescendo. That's the one that's the main point of, uh, of this. Not to say the others are any better, but the seventh one is the big point he's trying to make. Now, those are all on an individual basis. But what happens when you have enough individuals that are living the Proverbs 6 kind of life. And how does that get reflected in society? How, does that reflect, uh, how is that reflected in a nation? How is that reflected in a state or in a city or in a, in a, in a, in a community, a local community? All right? If you have a preponderance of the population that is all pursuing a Proverbs 6 uh, abomination, culture has broken down. Your society will be reflecting that. And it will be reflecting that in a very harmful way like uh, the woe messages here in Isaiah chapter 5. All right, six of these now. Woes and, by the way, yes, they're in your bulletin. A, B, C, D, E, and F. They're in your bulletin because I didn't feel like reinventing the wheel. Although my points are different. They are the same six woes. The real estate conglomerates and cooperative farming industries violating the principles of their land inheritance. Here's the thing. The greed behind compiling all these lands together, compiling all these houses together. As it says, uh, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. When does it stop? When are they satisfied? Is there a level of accumulated property or wealth that is sufficient? Do they ever grow content with what God has supplied? And do they acknowledge that in God's grace supply, there's wealth out there they're not entitled to? There's, there's property out there that it does not belong to them because he has apportioned it to other tribes or other clans within your tribe. Remember, Israel was tribal. Their land-grant inheritance was a part of their covenant relationship with God. And they totally ignored all that as they compiled land to land and house to house and started to drive out 
Jewish people from their God-given inheritance. When does it stop? As it says, adding house to house and joining field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. You have so crowded out your neighbors, they are so far from you because you have created this uh, mini-empire to yourself. What have you done? You have violated the community nature of their tribe, of their clan, of the nature of how God designed them in, uh, as the nation of Israel. This might be hard for us to deal with because we are so separated by centuries and by culture. We, we don't live in our nation as per our clans, as per our divinely given land grants. Okay, When I relocated, when the Lord relocated me from Washington State to Texas, uh, he was free to do so. And I was perfectly free to marry a Texas girl and happy to do so. All right? This was not the case in ancient Israel. This was not the case in the Old Testament, whereby Israel just couldn't pick up and move and live where they wanted to live. What is your clan? What is your tribe? What is your allotment? Where do you fit in the geographical will of God for your stewardship? This is really the big impact of this chapter. And I find it remarkable how many folks try to bring this into a modern sense and try to use this to in an in a, in attack against, uh, you know, uh, big farming and uh, try to say, well, the Bible sanctions uh, small family farms and the Bible is hostile to corporations and, and all the rest of this. And they try to find biblical sanction for their political views and they're misapplying, missing the whole point of what this chapter is dealing with. The land grants that were tribal to the nation of Israel and how it is that they lose the communal nature They lose the communal nature of this so that you live alone. They weren't supposed to live alone. They were supposed to live within their clan, within their tribe, within their nation. All right. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. You know, you have a real estate crash and then this used to be a multi-million dollar palace is now going for pennies on the dollar because there's just no market for it anymore. The whole thing has collapsed. Ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine. See, they, they thought that they could get more produce by uh, their uh, aggregate methods, and actually they've neglected the fact that God's the one who gives the increase. God's the one who sends the rain. God's the one who produces the crop yields. And he does so for his good pleasure, not for our profit. A homer, see, baseball's in the Bible. There's the homer right there in verse 10. <laughs> Ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. And you find that the harder and harder and harder you work, and you're getting less and less return. And that's a good thing, actually. When God does that, count, count yourself thankful. Count yourself faithful, thankful that God is a God of grace. I love the, the stories where... Um, you know, the, the Jesus is walking along and the disciples have been fishing all night. They're, they're exhausted, they're drained, they're beat. It's morning and they've got nothing to show for it. <laughs> they have empty nets. And, and can, can you imagine the pride of these? I mean, these are commercial fishermen. They're experts. This is their livelihood. This is, this is their specialty. And yet it's fruitless. All night long and come morning, they're just nothing. And he's walking along the beach. He says, throw your nets down on the other side of the boat. See, it's about obeying Jesus Christ. It's about being humble before his instructions. And they toss the nets on the other side of the boat and they can't even haul it. It nearly bursts to the seams, all the, the fish in that net. Okay? I love the fact when God reaches us in our low points where we think we're a total failure. Okay? Well, he's right. We are a total failure. But look what God does with total failures. Look at the God of grace that comes alongside and does such marvelous things. All right, woe number two. Non-stop entertainment. Entertainment is non-stop. Or 12 years ago when we were in the Through the Bible notes, I put it this way, their wealth and prosperity promoted a neglect for spiritual life. Life is just one great big party. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. These guys are the 24-hour-a-day the party people, right? 
And uh, their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, by wine. They've got all the entertainment imaginable. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Everything is about social life. Everything is about entertainment. Everything is about pleasures. And um, whatever you're working for, you're working for. I mean, how many people do you know that the whole reason why they're, they're holding the job they're holding is so that they can, they can fund their next weekend? You know, and then they come in all hungover Monday morning and do it again so they can fund the next weekend. And they're just living for the weekend. And we have it described here. The entertainment is nonstop. And as more and more and more believers are walking that way. Remember, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't come for, because of the unbelievers there. There was, a, there was inadequate salt and light produced by inadequate believers. Had there been ten righteous in Sodom, Sodom could have been spared. Sodom could have repented if Capernaum miracles had been done in Sodom. There were enough believers in Sodom to repent had, had, that, had that taken place. All right, so we have the 24-hour party people here. Is there anything wrong with celebration? Anything wrong with music? Is the Bible anti-music? Of course not. Not anti-celebration, not anti-alcohol, not anti-any of this stuff. But what's the priority and what order is it placed in? What's the proportion? Are you going to neglect your spiritual life? It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek ye first. Nothing at all wrong with with uh, enjoying the blessings of what God has provided. But you want to do so with a divine viewpoint capacity. You want to do so not for its own sake. You're not parting to have fun. You're having fun and you're giving glory to Jesus Christ for giving value to your fun. If that makes any sense. All right. You know, I tried to do a word study once on fun. What's the Greek word in the New Testament for fun? What's the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for fun? Not there. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about having fun. Okay? We're not, that's not our purpose for being here. We are saved unto good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then whatever enjoyment we have in our love affair with our dode, with our beloved, that's what makes it fun. All right, our third woe. <laughs> God is too slow for our endeavors. God is too slow for our endeavors. Verses 18 and 19 here. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as with cart ropes. We are so now involved in our own rebellion that we're, we're actually proceeding on an industrial basis. <laughs> we're actually applying ropes to the load so that we can pull more. We're employing carts, we're employing ropes, we're employing uh, um, all the mechanical devices necessary to accelerate the process because he's just too slow. Who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. God, you're too slow, we just don't see it happening. God, you're too slow, you're not following our timetable, our calendar, what we think you need to be doing, God. Comes up again, by the way, in Second Peter. Remember the mockers who come with their mocking, following after their own ungodly lust, and saying, "Where is the promise of His coming?" Criticizing dispensationalists because we still believe in a rapture. Well, come on, it's been two thousand years now. That's not going to happen. Get over it. Or that we still believe that Jesus Christ will return and conquer this world and be seated in Jerusalem to reign over this world. There are mockers that say, "Come on, that's never going to happen." They say, "There's no second heaven of Jesus Christ." Hadn't happened yet. It's never going to happen. Hmm. But God is not slow. As some count slowness, He's patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I know for a fact that God's not done with Israel. His word promised it. And uh, in the 1940s, He reestablished the nation of Israel in their land grant. (laughs) You know, those mockers, they spent 1,800 years mocking that, saying, well, there's no Jewish state, there's no Jerusalem, there's no, well, they can't, they can't mock that anymore. Now they say, well, there's no temple there, there's no temple there. There will be. Give it time. We're approaching it. Well, God is too slow for our endeavors. 
And how many ministries are built on this? How many church efforts are built on this? And man trying to prove to God how great we are and asking God to bless what we're doing instead of doing what God's blessing. And if things take, uh, things take a slow period of time, believe it or not, God's okay with that if they progress on His plan. We're the ones that get dissatisfied with, well, we don't see any results yet. Well, it's too slow. You read these accounts of missionaries that spend 20 years in a country before they get their first convert. You know what? I like those stories. You say, well, that's a waste of time. What else could the man have been doing for those 20 years? Well, he was obedient to the Lord. I'm not going to mock him for that. Other aspects there. Uh, The fourth woe. (laughs) We operate in our own reality at complete odds with God's reality. If you spend long enough in darkness, you will start to call good evil and evil good. You will be absolutely upside down and backwards, confused. And you find yourself talking to your neighbor and you realize they exist in a different reality than I do. <laughs> they, uh, they're, they're looking around, they're seeing current events, they're looking around, they're seeing uh, politics, they're looking around, they're seeing economics, they're looking around, they're seeing all these things, and they think things are going okay. They're actually pretty pleased with the direction things are going. And my, my, my jaw just kind of drops, and, and really? What, 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 what colors the sky in your world? You know, you wonder what, what, on what basis of reality are you, are you dealing with, Doug? All right. So let's look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. How would you call evil good and good evil? How would you possibly do that? Well, you're dealing in a reality that is absolutely at odds with God's reality. God has his wisdom. All right. And he's made the wisdom of this world foolishness. It's what we deal with. And who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, in the case of sweet and bitter, it's not the sense that any one of them are wrong. They're appropriate in their, in their place. We want our sweet things to be sweet. We want our bitter things to be bitter. We want our hot things to be hot. We want our cold things to be cold. The problem with the Laodicean believers is that they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, and it just made a big mess of both. I think it's the same thing with sweet and bitter. We want our sweet things to be sweet and our bitter to be bitter. Right? Our sweet and sour. Making me hungry. Okay. But the point being is that God has laid out the standards, and then we just chuck it and do our own standards. Wait a minute. We are not in the place to do that. We are the creatures. He is the I am, the standard of all righteousness. And we put ourselves under woe. And this happens more than we realize. When we substitute God's word, he tells us his word is sufficient and we add to it. We inject human philosophies into divine viewpoint understanding. We are substituting evil for good, sweet for sour. The fifth woe, we become our own standard, and we're quite pleased with how clever we are. Hmm. Yep, I'm doing well. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. I got it all figured out. Yep, got it all figured out. The whole course is all worked out, everything's all lined up. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There is a particular cleverness we are commanded to pursue. And it's called being wise as serpent, yet harmless as a dove. All right, The cleverness we're expected to pursue is to simply humble ourselves under his plan, to humble ourselves under his word, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and allow for the uh, bios life to work itself out. Those are details. The prime thing is to stay humble before the Lord our God. Are we going to be wise in our own eyes? See, here's the thing. We never want to do this. As individuals, as a nation, as a church, any corporate body, all right? If you think you've got it all figured out, that you're wise in your own eyes, if, uh, if you think that makes you a successful pastor because you have all the answers, or you think that makes you a successful husband well, because you just have all the answers, all right? All this is is pride. 
or you're the successful uh, political party, you've got all the answers, just vote for us and we're going to solve all your problems? How about some honesty? How about some humility? How about some fear of the Lord? How about walking in His wisdom and humbling ourselves before Him that He might, that he might provide in the proper time? I don't ever want to be wise in my own eyes or clever in my own sight. You know, God takes great delight in bringing that wisdom down. He even makes foolishness the, wise, the wisdom of the wise, demonstrating it for what it is. He knows how to humble those who walk in pride. What are those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink? All right. Who are we talking about here? Look how drunk these guys are. Intoxicated with stimulants? or even with their own power. There's a tandem here in in verses 22 and 23. There's the who and the who, and then there's more who-who's in verse 23. Okay, But it's the same woe. It's the same woe. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and who are valiant men in mixing strong drink. See, some people can't uh, deal with the problems of life by their own cleverness, so they just... Get drunk, and that deals with it. <laughs> okay, And if I just spend my life in a stupor, then that's the way to solve all my problems. So are we going to do this? Be intoxicated with stimulants? But then we have more hoo-hoos in verse 23. They still fall under the same woe who justify the wicked for a bribe. Who justify the wicked for a bribe. In other words, justice is for sale. Everything is for sale. All of life can be bought. You can make all your problems go away. You just get drunk and don't think about it, or you just buy your way out of it, deal with it that way. The point is, if you got the money to play with, then you can make your problems go away. Is that the solution? Is that what God provided for us in Proverbs? Where does that attitude come from? Who justify the wicked for bribe, and the final who, who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. They're drunk on stimulants. They're drunk on power. Nothing matters to them but them. And if somebody else is in the right, well, that doesn't matter. That's their vineyard. Who cares? Kill them. Take it. Okay? And you can justify anything with the right judge if you know who to buy and how to buy it and what arrangements to make. All right. So here are six woes, and here's a culture, and here's a society that's coming under God's judgment. And ask yourself, is this the United States of America. <laughs> is this our culture today? Do we find that these attitudes are prevalent or are they rare? Are they more common or less common? And which direction is that going? How much longer will God forbear? When will our woe messages start to be delivered in the pulpits of this land? All right, I think there's a reason why God has sent Isaiah and Jeremiah to this congregation. I believe we've got some dark days ahead. And that the doctrine, remember Isaiah preached and they were saved. Hezekiah gets 15 more years added to his life. Judah gets a forbearance. Judah gets, uh, the northern kingdom gets swept away by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom, Judah gets another 150 years. Okay? Before the Babylonians sweep them away. Judah gets a forbearance. God is gracious and gives them a Hezekiah. He gives them a Josiah. He gives them a handful of uh, leaders that preserves the remnant. Not so in the north. Okay? But by the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah preaches while the, the city falls. He's in the city when the city falls. And I'm looking forward to teaching both Isaiah and Jeremiah in the next uh, however many Sundays it takes. Okay, 66 for Isaiah, 52 for Jeremiah, that's, that's a whole year, right? 52 Sundays in a year. Jeremiah will be a whole year. Isaiah will be a little bit more than a year. And if God delays long enough to give us these next two plus years, then we're going to be equipped to deal with the collapse of civilization. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> All right. God selects nations suitable to the task in the outworking of his plan. 
Look at the last part here of chapter 5, verses 26 through 30. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. Uh, God whistles. He puts up the standard. He plants the plants the flag, right? Like when the tree people come along and they plant the little thing and that's your part of the tree program and someone's going to see the little flag sticking there in your front yard and they're going to come along and plant a tree there. Okay, well, he whistles and he plants the flag and the flag is for a superpower to come and demolish this nation. All right? And when the flag is, when the flag is planted... When the standard is lifted up and the whistle sounds, there's nothing that's going to stop it. Now, in these verses, the nation is unnamed. We're not told that it's Assyria. We're not told that it's Babylon. We're not told that it's Egypt. We're not told that it's Rome. We're not told that it's the United States of America. Um, And that's for a reason. All right? This is the first reference to such judgment, and it is left specifically generic. It's left specifically anonymous. He will start naming names in upcoming chapters. And Assyria will be mentioned by name. Babylon will be mentioned repeatedly by name. And we're going to have to break down for you eschatologically, prophetically, what nation is in view. I believe in this chapter, though, that what is being given is a generic illustration, a generic for instance, so that the pattern is established, so that the principle is taught. But then we'll see the unfolding of that as Assyria is the nation that's whistled for to carry away the northern kingdom. Babylon is the nation that's whistled for to carry away the southern kingdom. Rome is the nation that's whistled for to, to carry away Israel in the first century A.D. in uh, Titus and his destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All right, Rome was the nation whistled for there. Antichrist will be whistled for in the coming tribulation. In fact, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against Israel in the coming tribulation. Will there be any stopping it? (laughs) Uh, Can we stop the hand of God and his judgment? Might as well try to stop the sun, moon, and stars. Might as well try to stop the tide from coming in or going out. Notice now. He will lift up a standard to the distant nation, will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. Behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. Your army does real well against that, that army if your army doesn't get tired. No one slumbers or sleeps. Neither slumbering nor sleeping. So I thought they were the same thing. <laughs> kind of. But using related terms to intensify it, to double up on the promise. All right. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. The finest of equipment. The equipment never wears out. It's always in working order. Uh, The gun never misfires. You know, Israel, when they traveled to the wilderness, their shoes never wore out. Their tent ropes never snapped. Can you imagine? I lived in the desert for six months. Stuff always broke. You know, I mean, everything. There was dust everywhere. It was nasty. And the idea that your shoes never wear out 20 years later, 40 years later, that's a miracle, right? And so here's the language of these soldiers. The belt at its waist is never undone. If you study the armor of God, you know it all hangs off that belt, the belt of truth. Its sandal strap is never broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The weaponry is in prime working order, effective. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint. Remarkably enough, given that uh, this is fascinating too, written in the 7th century B.C. when uh, our understanding of horseshoeing didn't uh, come about until the uh, Middle Ages, the Carolingians of the Middle Ages. The hoofs of the horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off. Notice, with no one to deliver it. How are you going to stop something like this? There is no rescue. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. God selects the tools that he uses for judgment. Such nations are invincible 
as the weapons of His selection in use. God has called them. God is using them. And they cannot lose. They cannot lose. Such nations are invincible as the weapons of His selection in use. I enjoy reading uh, different things. And militarily, we won battles in World War II. We shouldn't have won. And you start to look at different things and wonder, how does that happen? Okay, well, if you have a divine viewpoint, you realize that God has His hand in all of it. This message, by the way, Daniel's going to be very pleased to expand upon it. He's going to have a chance to teach it to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to have the chance to humble him or try. To say, don't be full of yourself. God's the one who's at work. And in particular, if he has selected your nation to be the disciplined nation for Israel, that probably means that you were a wicked nation to begin with because he has to curse those who curse Israel. (laughs) Right? I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. Is God going to pick a righteous nation to go discipline Israel? Well, then he'd have to turn around and condemn them for destroying the Jewish people. Or does he pick the Assyrians, the godless, wicked Assyrians? Does he pick the Babylonians, the godless, wicked Babylonians? All right, Who does he pick to destroy Israel, to discipline the Jewish people? Why does he pick Antichrist in the coming tribulation to attack Israel? Why did he pick Rome in the first century to destroy Israel? Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Finally, um, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar had to live like an animal for seven years to finally understand this doctrine, you guys get to get it in a, in a friendly Sunday afternoon. Nebuchadnezzar took seven years to learn this, and he learned this the hard way, out in his backyard eating grass like the cattle. And then finally, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Notice now the doctrine that he learned. This was the doctrine he should have learned at the beginning of the chapter. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's in charge. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God's in charge. We come along and we build empires. We uh, Human beings conquer other human be- uh, beings and redraw maps and move boundaries. And, and we think, oh, we're so in charge. And if we're really, really good at it, then we get the conqueror attached to the end of our name. And, we, and they remember us for years and years later. Okay? Well, okay, we had some military success against human beings. What did we do in the angelic realm? God's in charge of all of this. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? (laughs) So when He plants the standard and whistles for the nation from on far, are we going to hold His hand and stop Him and say, what are you doing? The army that comes will be invincible. There is no reason for boasting though. No reason for boasting by the tool in God's hand. I'm like, oh, this is going to be so fun. Five weeks from now, come back in five weeks in Isaiah chapter 10. Actually, come back every week. But five weeks from now, five weeks from now, we're going to see this in Isaiah chapter 10. Because um, Assyria is the tool. And just because he planted a standard and whistled and said, come here, Assyria, sweep away my northern kingdom for me, doesn't mean that they're special. Doesn't mean that they should be boasting. Doesn't mean that they can get full of themselves. They're not going to continue to be invincible. They're, going to, they're very vincible. They're about to get vinced. They're about to be destroyed. Okay? I don't know what that means. The point is, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I sent it against a godless nation. I commissioned it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. But don't get full of yourself. This wasn't about you. This was about Yahweh Elohim disciplining His covenant nation. Yet, (laughs) it's interesting, they get full of themselves. You get down to verse uh, 10. 
Nope, down to verse 15. You realize God was the one that was doing all this. He was punishing the arrogant heart. He's going to punish, in verse 12, the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Why do you think he whistled for you? You were due for destruction anyway. So let me whistle for you, use you to discipline the Jewish people, and then I'll wipe you out. That's the plan. So my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest as one gathers an abandoned egg. I gathered all the earth. See, God's at work. I love verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? The axe is a tool. The axe is an axe. What kind of boasting can the axe do? What kind of, or the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? I, I am, I'm the prime example of this. I am the worst. I am the, I'm the anti-tool uh, pinnacle on planet Earth. All right, screwdrivers, hammers, saws, tools, irrelevant, okay? Put a tool in my hand, expect me to fix something, it will break, I'll make it worse. And somebody else who has skill with the same tool can accomplish the mission and get it done. So where's the boasting? In the tool? The tool can never boast. It's in the hand that wields the tool. And so verse 15, if that's not already on your refrigerator... That's a verse for every pastor, every minister, every believer in the church age. You are a tool in the hand of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare start bragging about what you've done. The, the axe cannot boast over the one who chops with it. That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. But, you know, the tail wagging the dog, right? Or the club wielding the, those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. So, yeah, they were invincible in the last battle. They couldn't lose in the last battle, but they're done. God's done with them. In fact, when they march against Jerusalem, they're going to lose 185,000 in one night. So much for the invincible. Keep this in mind because we've got prophecies coming up. Cyrus, 39 weeks from now. We'll be in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. I'm going to say, remember when? Think back. Cyrus will be God's selection in later prophecies. Cyrus, named by name before he was even born. This had huge impact, by the way. The rabbis were able to show this book to Cyrus to say, we've been expecting you. Can you imagine? Say, well, that was a lucky guess. <laughs> You know, the, the Bible haters, the Bible skeptics and the God haters have used some of these chapters to somehow think that uh, Isaiah couldn't have written it. And so they invent a Deutero-Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah. They say, this must have been written after the fact because there's no way they could have gotten his name right. Well, wait a minute. You're assuming that the Jewish people made this stuff up and wrote their own Bible. God wrote it. He wrote it ahead of time. He wrote it ahead of time, absolutely true and if you think that the naming Cyrus a hundred years early is, is, is a dazzling thing, this is the same prophet who told us that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. All right. If you try to postulate a, a Maccabean author, you still haven't solved the virgin birth of our Savior. All right. You still haven't solved the glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were also prophesied in this marvelous book. I love this book. So in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, you're going to see a Gentile king who's called God's shepherd. And he's not brought in to discipline Israel. He's brought in to bless Israel. And he blesses those who bless him. And Persia, Cyrus, will be blessed because they bless the Jewish people. They're going to be blessed to be given Queen Esther. They're going to be blessed in a lot of things they don't earn and deserve. The Persians are going to be so blessed, in fact, that their legacy, their descendants will be the Magi, the wise men that will come to, uh, to see the, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the, the birth of our Savior. Finally, even Antichrist. Boy, do I have time for this? Maybe. Real quick, Isaiah 44. The end of chapter 44, the beginning of chapter 45. What's wonderful about these chapters is these are the chapters that prove that God is God and they're not. 
The, the idols of the nations are invented. The idols of the nations are uh, prod, wood projects that have been made by man. And you've got to carry them around because they can't move themselves. And you can pray to them, but they don't answer. They don't talk. They don't do anything. They just sit there. <laughs> and uh, they don't even realize what they've done in this stupid idolatry of theirs. And yet God is the living God. God is the God who announces these things. He prophesies. He speaks. He's the one who says the end from the beginning. He's the one who creates all these things. These chapters are proving who God is by declaring them ahead of time. So verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone. All these things that he does. Confirming the word of his servants, performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And everybody in the seventh century Israel says, who? Cyrus, who? Who's Cyrus? He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. Persia thought they were invincible. Hmm. Well, Cyrus was, because the hand of God was on him. Xerxes, not so much. Okay? But he thought he was. Why? All right. In any event, there's that. Ultimately, Antichrist and the, uh, and the Gentile armies of Armageddon, they too will be invincible until Jesus Christ returns personally at Second Advent and defeats them. Even Antichrist and the Gentile armies of Armageddon will be serving the Lord in the application of His judgment against His people Israel. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. I believe uh, I hold to an early date of Joel with reference to uh, his connection here with Isaiah. Oh, goodness. Joel chapter 2. Here's these, uh, this army. They're like locusts. They're just everywhere. You can't stop them. Nothing stops them. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. You know, do you want to visualize world peace? It just bugs me to death that uh, so many folks today are just blinded to the realities of the day and age in which we live. We're not going to have world peace until Jesus Christ conquers. Then I can visualize it. You bet I can visualize it. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. The uniqueness of this day. There's only one unique day, and this is the day of the Lord. Nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them. Behind them, a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. Nothing at all escapes them. goes on to describe these people. Man, this is, a, this is an impressive army here. And yet you'll notice in verse 11, the Lord utters His voice before His army. Who whistled, who whistled for these guys? Who planted the, the, the banner? This is actually the Lord's army. He's the one that's designated for the, the Antichrist Gentile conquest of Jerusalem in the tribulation. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. And the day of the Lord is indeed very great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord. Do I believe there's ever an expiration date after which repentance is not possible? I believe if you're still alive, still breathing, can read this text, yet even now, return to me. The name of that songbook that we're looking at, the Return to me. 
America, what's the answer? Political? Economic? Military? Return to me. Yet even now, return to me. If believers in this country get serious about doctrine, get quit playing the foolish games, return to me. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. And who knows whether or not He will turn and relent. Who knows? Now, we may repent tomorrow, and our nation could still be destroyed. The point is, though, let's repent today. Let's get our heart right today. Because if our nation is destroyed, we want to be, we want to face the Lord on His terms, adjusted appropriately. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for Isaiah chapter 5. And Father, this, this wraps up the introduction. The first five chapters are a literary introduction to what follows. Next week, we get to learn about Isaiah's call to ministry, the vision he had of, of the seraphim in your throne room and his calling to service and his volunteering. Here I am, send me. Father, uh, thank you for taking us through this book. I realize it's a rapid pace. I realize we're getting big picture. There's so much more to learn, so many more details. Perhaps a day may come that we'll come back and revisit these chapters in greater detail. But for now, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Lead us into these applications. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.